This is another exclusive podcast from Pituitary World News. Hello, everybody. Welcome. I'm Jorge Fascinetti. We have a great discussion for you today. Our subject is traumatic brain injuries and the effects they can have on the pituitary gland and endocrine systems. Joining Dr. Blevins and I in this discussion is Dr. Kevin Ewan, a world-renowned endocrinologist and Pituitary World News contributor. Many studies have shown that a high percentage of patients who suffer mild to moderate or severe traumatic brain injuries can have some form of pituitary dysfunction. Each year in the U.S., about 2.5 million children and adults, including professional athletes and war veterans, suffer a traumatic brain injury, or TBI, caused by either a blow to the head, penetrating head injury, or repeated jolts to the head according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and more than 5.3 million Americans are currently living with a lifelong disability due to TBI. Dr. Kevin Ewan is a medical director at the Barrows Neurological Institute in Phoenix, Arizona. Dr. Ewan's expertise includes the diagnosis and treatment of pituitary and adrenal tumors, pituitary dysfunction, and in neuroendocrine disorders in young adults, cancer survivors, and adults with traumatic brain injury. He is a fellow of the American College of Endocrinology. Dr. Ewan earned his medical degree from the University of Sheffield. He completed his residency in in internal medicine, uh, medicine at the University of Southampton, and a fellowship in internal medicine, diabetes, and endocrinology at the University of Cambridge. Dr. Blevins and I are delighted to chat with Dr. Ewan. So let's jump right in. Hello, Jorge. Good to be back. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you both. Uh, This will be great. I enjoyed our last uh, podcast or so and uh, look forward to this one. So Kevin, you had a great idea to do a podcast on this topic. And uh, Jorge and I consider this to be an opportunity that uh, we enjoy to work with you uh, and to cover this information that you've uh, uh, decided needs some attention. And we certainly agree that it uh, uh, needs attention, uh, not only for patients and physicians, and that's why we're doing this today. So uh, welcome. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's one of those areas that I think um, that presents to many different types of specialties. And and I, I can tell you, I think all of us, I can say, must have had some form of head injury or, or, or uh, some form of head trauma as we are, you know, in our lives. But it's just the fact that it's ne- uh, never been addressed appropriately and some patients have worse uh, injuries than others. And so it really needs uh, uh, increased awareness in this area, definitely. So yes, we should say that we will be discussing a traumatic brain injury and its effect on the pituitary gland. So why don't I, I start with a question to you both, and uh, we can go uh, from there. So how does TBI cause hypopituitarism? Um, so TBI uh, can cause hypopituitarism in many ways, and certainly in the uh, literature you'll see that there are several uh, postulated hypotheses as to how this happens. It can be um, direct injury to the pituitary. It can be ischemia from a, a reduction in blood flow. 
It can be a result of edema, squeezing the pituitary tissue, causing a, a reduction in blood flow. Uh, patients who have head injuries cause, uh, caused by uh, skull-based fractures, that can also do that. Um, if they lose a lot of blood, severe hypotension can do that. Uh, and those are the acute, typical acute uh, causes of how uh, TBI can cause hypopituitarism. Uh, and then over a period of time during the uh, chronic phase, sometimes, you know, they can also develop uh, an autoimmune phenomenon uh, whereby they develop antibodies that can actually also affect the pituitary function as well. Uh, some patients are also susceptible. They have genetic polymorphisms like the APOE4 allele, which is also a risk factor for patients to develop uh, hypopituitarism. So essentially, uh, many postulated hypo hypotheses as to how this causes hypopituitarism, and definitely more studies are needed. Yeah, those are all the uh, mechanisms that I'm familiar with. I have seen one patient in my entire career who actually had a transection of the pituitary stalk as a result of a head injury. And the only presumed mechanism for that is as the brain was sort of being slammed forwards and backwards in the spinal fluid that the pituitary stalk was injured by the diaphragma celli and it actually just tore it in two. Uh, and uh, she presented with diabetes insipidus and panhypopituitarism. So it's a rather interesting uh, observation. We actually reported that case somewhere. I can't remember where now, maybe endocrine practice. But uh, that's a that's a an odd, unexpected one that causes acute hypopituitarism. It's never going to recover. So, so what type of injuries are, do you associate with uh, pituitary dysfunction that would cause pituitary well, it, dysfunction? It used to be believed that you would only see hypopituitarism if you had a severe head injury with basilar skull fractures, and we. You know, when I was in my fellowship training, we learned these different types of skull fractures that would be associated with this. And sometimes it was said there had to be a fracture through the cella turcica. But we know that's not the case. There are people having uh, multiple repetitive head injuries, playing soccer, uh, falling down, bicycling, football injuries, etc. cetera. Uh, and then just people falling off ladders or hitting their head on cabinets, etc. They end up with, with one or more anterior pituitary hormone deficiencies, either acutely or long term. Uh, some of these people just languish for years after a head injury and are ultimately found to have an abnormality consistent with pituitary dysfunction, either hypogonadism with low gonadotropins or uh, low T4 with normal TSH or uh, low IGF-1, and then they're evaluated and found to have pituitary injury with no other anatomic explanation for it, but a historical uh, set of uh, circumstances that uh, that indicate that they had a significant head trauma, not a skull fracture, but a, a blunt injury to the head, sometimes with a concussion, sometimes not, actually. Yeah, also, I think the, uh, the recent um, uh, literature also indicates that the extremes of ages, so, you know, the very young, so like children or, um, you know, who are involved in the sports injuries or, or skateboarding, the falling over their heads, um, or in school or, you know, in sports, you know, swimming, they hit the head against the wall. And then the extreme ages would be the elderly, you know, elderly folks who are, you know, who fall a lot and uh, because of their unsteadiness. Uh, and then the, the other group would be, I think, worth mentioning is the domestic violence. I don't think they, uh, 
they also get much in the way of uh, uh, reporting because a lot of these patients don't see doctors because of the uh, of, of the nature of their injuries. And finally, also the veterans coming back from uh, from the war, you know, where there are a lot of blast injuries uh, are, are happening out there. So yeah, so different types of groups of patients, particularly as well. It's interesting. Do you see uh, obviously boxers and <laughs> and football players would be right in that category? Do you see an inordinate amount of people that do those kinds of sports that are heavy impact or? Yes, definitely. Um, in fact, there was a study that uh, uh, myself and Dan Kelly, we looked at uh, retired NFL football players and uh, found that approximately 50% of them ended up developing, after they've retired, uh, developing metabolic syndrome, uh, weight gain, uh, hypothyroidism, hypogonadism, and about 20% of them ended up developing growth hormone deficiency. So, uh, so yeah, um, the, the sports um, uh, community are also, especially those with high impact sports, contact sports, um, even with the helmets, uh, they, ended, they end up having some degree of uh, injuries as well and hypopituitarism as well. So what hormone deficiency states are the most common then? Um, because of the anatomical location of the uh, somatotropes, typically um, uh, the somato typically the growth hormone uh, deficiency is reportedly to be uh, most frequently affected because it's more towards the lateral part of the pituitary, which is supplied by the uh, long hypophyseal uh, vessels. And then the other hormones that go in order would be the gonadal hormones that may be affected and then followed by um, uh, ACTH and TSH deficiencies. Interestingly, uh, diabetes insipidus is actually not that common. Um, I'm not sure why it may be related to the mechanism of how the head injury develops. So. Yeah, interesting. And uh, uh, what, what kind of symptoms do, when a patient comes in with a, a, a possible injury, what type of symptoms do they complain? Symptoms would be very, relate, very much related to uh, hypopituitary symptoms. Uh, again, depending on the level of severity uh, and also impairment in uh, uh, neurocognitive dysfunction. So a lot of them do complain of impairment in their language, their information processing speed. A lot of them do complain of depression, anxiety, poor sleep um, patterns, irritability, uh, impairment in attention, memory. Uh, their alertness is affected, their executive functioning is affected. A lot of these factors do play into their ability to sometimes hold down a job and sometimes they may be, uh, their, their livelihood, their job livelihood could be affected as well. Other types of symptoms could be related to the type of hormone deficiencies that may be impacted. So for, for example, growth hormone deficiency, they may be developing the inability to lose weight, they may gain central obesity, they may have um, uh, 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 reduction in terms of their bone mineral density, they have erectile dysfunction, uh, low libido, you know, all those types of things as well. I'm wondering how common this is. You mentioned uh, earlier that you see a lot of cases, uh, and I thought we could just talk about how common these are and who tends to get it you know I think we mentioned a little bit you know the some of the athletes or the uh, 
um, uh, football players and boxers, but it sounds like uh, it, this is pretty common, no, with any injury. Well, it can be, and I don't think we really truly understand how common it can be because there's a, a, a problem with testing. Uh, it's under-recognized, under-reported, under-tested, and uh, the good news is is some of the centers for neuroskills, like the one in Emeryville and other places that take care of patients who survive head trauma, yeah. understand now that this is a potential problem, and they're testing and surveying for hypopituitarism over time in some of these patients. But I think the vast majority of people aren't being cared for in some of those centers and uh, may languish for some time uh, before, uh, if ever, they're diagnosed uh, with hypopituitarism and then led to a pathway to treatment and improved quality of life. So um, um, what type of medical specialties sees patients with uh, TBI hypopituitarism? Um, yeah, coming back to Dr. Blevins's point, uh, the reason why a lot of these patients are languishing and may never be tested or may be tested uh, at a delayed stage uh, is because um, the, the thinking is that they may not even be uh, thought of as having hypopituitarism. It is possible, and the reason, part of the reason is because they end up, uh, a lot of these patients could potentially be seen in rehab medicine, um, and depending on the severity of the injury, maybe they end up going to the ICU, so they are managed by neurosurgeons. Um, they have profound headaches from the head injury. They are seeing a neurologist, but again, they may not be tested. Uh, they may even be see seeing a sleep medicine doctor as well for their problems with their sleep disorders. Uh, and depending on their age, so if they have, uh, if they are, if they are, if the injury occurs when they are young as a child, they may see a general pediatrician who may not necessarily be thinking of possible hypopituitarism in these patients. Um, I'm assuming that a lot of this may go untreated. So what happens if TBI hypopituitarism develops and goes untreated, but people don't recognize they have an issue? I think it might be best to first talk about what happens in the first place, and that is they develop one or more pituitary hormone deficiencies. And usually the most common ones are growth hormone deficiency and hypogonadism. Uh, so men often have symptoms of hypogonadism, including erectile dysfunction, loss of libido, depression, night sweats, etc. cetera. Uh, women will have uh, either irregular or absent menses, uh, in the more severe cases, some may have symptoms and signs of hypothyroidism. And of course, all these three hormone deficiencies can have many of the same symptoms and signs. So patients often have fatigue, lassitude, weight gain, depression, lack of interest in life. Uh, they, they just don't feel that they're themselves after the accident. They may have some brain fog. And those symptoms are common to the three hormone deficiencies we mentioned, or I mentioned in, in the... Um, Patients who have the most severe forms, they can also have central adrenal insufficiency, uh, where they may have loss of appetite, loss of weight, um, depression, um, hypotension, poor uh, physical responses to illness or stress, for example. And then many of them will have diabetes insipidus if the posterior pituitary is involved. But that first set of symptoms for the first three hormone things that I mentioned are the ones that I would say are most common in my patients who have 
evidence of uh, hypopituitarism after head injury. And if we don't treat, which gets to the question that you asked, generally speaking, you'll see just a worsening of those symptoms and signs. People lose their lives. Yeah, They don't do things with their friends anymore. They're not uh, active in their families. They don't have any um, quality of life. There's no pleasure derived from things that should be enjoyable, uh, whether it be sports or shopping or uh, interactions with other people. They tend to become socially isolated. Uh, and um, that's the consequence of not being treated, uh, not to mention the fact that there are metabolic consequences as well, osteoporosis, uh, higher cardiovascular risk, and things of that nature. Now, one thing that is important to also mention uh, is the fact that if they, are, if they, are, if they have underlying uh, adrenal insufficiency, if that's severe, and if it goes untreated, they are potentially... Uh, at risk of uh, an adrenal crisis, and that is potentially life-threatening as well. And in fact, um, there are some suggestions. There's some suggestion that uh, patients with adrenal insufficiency uh, do have poorer uh, quality of life uh, in these types of patients, and may also have a higher risk of having other types of hormonal deficiencies as a result of being adrenally insufficient. How do you test for this? Testing really depends on the type of hormones that are deficient. So I think what we, what is, should be done uh, is the fact that just like any uh, pituitary function testing that you would do is basically do a basal um, basal uh, blood test to screen for uh, any potential hypopituitarism. So and it really depends on when you see the patient. But um, importantly, if the patient presents early. Uh, and you catch the patient maybe in the in the first week or so, it's important not to miss adrenal insufficiency and diabetes insipidus because these two factors are potentially poor predictors of long-term uh, mortality. And then, uh, and then within the first three months, you would then perhaps consider screening them with a, again with a general screening of pituitary function which could be in the form of testing them for thyroid uh, deficiency, TSH deficiency, uh, testosterone deficiency. And in women, if they have oligomenorrhea or amenorrhea, then uh, you probably know that they are definitely having some degree of uh, hypogonadism. Um, and, uh, and then also not forgetting to test for morning cortisol levels. And perhaps you may even consider a cortisol stimulation, uh, cortosin stimulation test as well, just to make sure you do not miss adrenal insufficiency. And then after about a year or so, you might consider continuing to test these patients because I think interestingly, some of these uh, hormonal deficiencies can actually improve over time. In other words, they may be deficient in the first two or three months, and then over time, when the injury gets better, some of these deficiencies can improve. Although I, I rarely see them, but uh, I know that this, this has been reported. So it's important to continue testing them within the, the first year or even beyond the first year, especially if, they, if, especially if the patients do complain of symptoms. So in terms of uh, uh, barriers uh, to diagnosis and testing and treating, what are... What are some of those that would prevent from somebody from getting diagnosed? Typically, the fact that they need to, uh, the, the physician or the clinician who's seeing the patient uh, would first and foremost need to be thinking about the possibility of hypopituitarism as a result of the head injury. Because if you don't think about it, you're not going to test for it. 
Okay. Right? I think that's very important. Um, and sometimes patients may not necessarily report that they have had a head injury in the past. And, and so when you don't report something, the physician will not know or the, the clinician will not know and therefore they may not even be testing because they may not be even thinking about it. So I think it's important to get a good history of uh, the physician who's seeing the patient. Patients need to report if they have had a severe head injury like falling off a ladder or something that they've been hospitalized or they've had imaging studies which shows in, uh, abnormalities in, in, the, uh, in the imaging studies. So, um, and then there's also the fact that uh, if the non-endocrinologists, if they are not, um, uh, if they're not um, familiar of the type of testing, then they need to be referring these patients to endocrinologists who are familiar of testing these patients. Yeah. So it's a case where they're not putting it together, then they just don't make the, the association. Absolutely. An, uh, an issue. So, um, so, what are some of the what is some of the evidence that supports that treatment of TBI-induced hypopituitarism improves quality of life and other uh, related issues or morbidities? Well, um, a lot of the evidence comes down to the fact that um, they um, they need to be replaced. So, for example, um, if they have cortisol deficiency, then it's definitely not only uh, replacing that improves their uh, quality of life, but also prevents them from uh, from getting infections or from dying from adrenal crisis. So those are the some of the comorbidities that need to be treated. Mm -hmm. uh, patients who have diabetes insipidus clearly, if they they may have sodium uh, or electrolyte um, uh, abnormalities, and that that and that may predispose them to. Uh, seizures and therefore it's important that those need to be treated as well. And finally, um, the effects of growth hormone on uh, on these patients in terms of improving their quality of life is certainly well documented in many growth hormone deficiency studies in adults. And in fact, recently there was a couple of papers that have been published looking at a subset of traumatic brain injury patients where they found that um, replacing them with growth hormone not only improve their quality of life but also to the point where they've almost uh like what patients what i had one patient who told me that you know i i, I got my life back uh, so almost back to where they were originally and that's huge because a lot of these patients have uh, been going through like, like like dr blevins mentioned languishing and not being diagnosed and suddenly they've lost their livelihood, they've lost their jobs, they've perhaps even lost their marriage and, and then to be told that uh, there is something that can improve that is, is huge. Uh, that, that couple of studies have actually shown that um, in fact there's a name for it, they call it brain injury associated fatigue and altered cognition or BIAFAC, B-I-A-F-A-C. Mm. So that's been also reported in several um, studies now and it's uh, uh, and so a lot of studies are, are needed in both humans and animal studies to hopefully better understand the role of, um, of these hormones, especially growth hormone in terms of improving their mental cognition and, uh, and mental function of these patients. One other thing I want to add about uh, the growth hormone deficiency that I think it's important to recognize is that um, 
I see a lot of people who have isolated growth hormone deficiency, everything else is normal. Mm. And if you look at the literature, the reason this is important, if you look at the literature, a number of people will have growth hormone deficiency after head trauma that seems to get better mm. and resolve and improve. So they may only require temporary hormone replacement. So in those patients, I tend to retest them after two years of treatment uh, just to see if they've recovered function. And obviously, I'm testing to see if they develop additional dysfunction. If they have, certainly, I don't retest that group. But those with just isolated growth hormone deficiency, it's important to retest them, even if you're going to treat. Some would argue that maybe you should wait until a year or two years after the injury to treat. If they have growth hormone deficiency at that time, it's probably not going to to reverse itself. Um, and the other thing I would comment on that sort of relates to something that you said is I do have a a number of people who come to me and have classical symptoms and signs of growth hormone deficiency ascribed to the head trauma and I treat them and they're not fully recovered. So a number of these people do have significant uh, injury to the cerebral hemispheres and cognitive dysfunction. It's not going to get better uh, or other uh, neuropsychiatric problems that aren't going to fully resolve. I like to think of it as they get maybe 60 to 70% better. So those who've had a concussion with loss of consciousness, they don't always fully recover from the growth hormone. Those without a loss of consciousness oftentimes do, uh, just to be a little bit more sort of direct and specific about my experiences there. No, I agree. I, I don't think every patient would, would, would report that they feel absolutely better. Uh, I'm sh uh, there are some patients who still... Uh, find that they don't get uh, uh, better uh, from the injury, and it's um, it's it's difficult to know which patients would respond well and which patients don't. But some of those that do, they actually do respond remarkably well. But definitely, there are some subsets of patients where um, they, you know, no matter how much uh, growth hormone and how much thyroid you 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 increase their doses to to achieve their higher end of the reference range, it's still difficult to, uh, to improve their quality of life any further. I think these discussions are so informational and so fascinating. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering, as I listen to you, to both of you, is of all of the people you see with traumatic brain injury, uh, what percent would you say are, are athletes or uh, kids that are playing contact sports you know, all of the content, all of the sports that use the head, soccer being, being one of them, you don't, you don't think of soccer as too much of a contact sport as opposed to, let's say, rugby or football. But, yeah. but um, it's so it's fascinating because it's so underreported. I think, you know, people don't just don't discuss these kinds of things. Yeah. In my experience, it's not, you know, it's the athletes are the rare ones. Okay. Uh, maybe because they're not being tested accordingly to, uh, to what we would recommend uh, after playing contact sports. Uh, but it's usually people like, you know, a car salesman who was kicked in the head by a, a, a guy who was trying to buy a car who was trying to demonstrate how close he could get to his head without hitting him, but actually hit him in the head. Yeah. Or a woman that was run over by two guys having a, a, a race. Uh, and uh, one of them ran into her at full speed. Uh, or a woman who was on a bicycle and hit by an automobile. A guy on a on a motorcycle uh, and slips on the on the you know the crossing rail for the muni and his head bobbles down the down the road as he's coming to a stop. Uh, another person who ran into a cabinet and uh, actually was lost consciousness has had a significant concussion. Yeah, uh, people who've fallen from ladders. Um, those sorts of things are what 
the, the most common types of head traumas that we encounter in America yeah. uh, that, that ultimately see, that bring them to medical attention. Uh, and uh, ultimately they get sent to a center that is aware of the risk of hypopituitarism and tests them. I've probably seen two football, uh, uh, national football league football players in 13 years. Uh, one boxer who his hypopituitary is actually probably more likely due to his pituitary adenoma than it was his head trauma. Yeah. Um, no soccer players, but I mentioned that because I've seen it reported in the literature. Uh, yeah, I've, I've read about, about that. That's, yeah. Talked about on NPR, you know, so yeah. that's getting, you know, should you let your teenagers play soccer and learn to use their head to move the ball? Yeah. Uh, and pass it? Probably not, you know, because it's a significant impact that can lead to concussion. Yes. Um, I don't think there's a system-wide uh, way of testing either college or high school football players to see, you know, the, all of them have had concussions. So uh, is, is there a way to test? Is anybody doing it? Is anybody alert to it that, that they may be developing pituitary hormone deficiencies? I don't think so. But uh, it's something that probably needs to be considered in any contact sport. But that's not where our patients are coming from. Maybe Kevin's experience is different. And I'll let him relate to his experiences in that arena. I, I think it really depends on where you work and the setup that you have. Um, obviously, if you're in a hospital where there's no level three trauma or, or, or there's no, e, uh, you know, you don't get uh, in the ER, or you don't get these um, uh, trauma patients, then you probably don't see as much. Uh, I, I'm fortunate because I work in, a, in, a, in an institution where um, I, I work very closely with a, neuro uh, with a colleague of mine who's a neurologist who has a specific interest in uh, head injuries. And he's actually, um, he works very closely with the, uh, uh, the football teams, you know, at the NFL leagues. So he gets to see all these, he gets to go to the games as well, obviously. Yeah. And he's the team doctor as well. Um, so he gets referrals for these uh, head injuries. Um, we've also been trying to go to schools to educate kids as well uh, about the possibility of reporting head injuries when that happens in school because a lot of the times kids fall over they don't even tell you yeah. um, and uh, you don't even know so um, and or for example kids who are playing uh, girls particularly playing soccer and they're heading the ball and uh, I'm told that they are more susceptible to that as well because their neck muscles are, are not as strong as, say, the boys. And so if they're hitting the balls and their skull is not as uh, strong as the boys, they are, they are more liable to develop these injuries as well. Um, so we see, I see a few of those from you know, kids from schools and, and also uh, one or two sports, um, uh, sports-related injuries. But the majority by far of them would be those, you know, falling off a horse, falling off the bike, falling off the ladder, uh, motor vehicle accidents. Those are the, those are the main ones. It doesn't mean that other, other uh, causes are not there. It's just that they, they are probably not presenting as, as frequently as these patients who, um, who are involved in, in these kinds of major accidents. Mm -hmm. So this has been very interesting discussion, as Jorge had mentioned. Uh, Kevin, I have a, a, a question for you. So is there anything else that you uh, would like to share with the audience, the listeners? And remember, this is a combination of patients, patient families, and providers. 
so what would you like to say? And maybe after you answer that question, you can talk about what your recommendations would be to sort of increase awareness. Um, I think it's very important to um, put the word out that people who have had head injuries, um, particularly those patients who have sustained concussions, and concussions, I don't mean people who have lost consciousness because sometimes concussions can occur without necessarily losing consciousness. And um, or pa pa patients or people who have had fallen over um, uh, and hit their heads and they have blacked out for a period of time or they've developed some degree of amnesia from, from that accident or they've, they've been to the ER, they've had a scan and there's some changes on the, uh, on the imaging studies. I think, you know, it's not unreasonable for, for, uh, for them to, be, uh, to, to come forward, especially if they have symptoms that we have described earlier you know, just to be assessed and to be, um, to be evaluated, just to make sure that there isn't any long-standing uh, uh, pituitary deficiencies that are associated with, that, with those injuries. I think, I think in terms of the awareness, um, it's important to, to increase awareness in schools, in, in, in colleges, in educational institutions, where sports is, um, is especially contact sports are, are frequently uh, played. Um, parents need to be involved and need to be educated as well because especially if their kids come home and they've told you or their teachers have told you that they have had a concussion um, don't sometimes don't take it uh, lightly so they make sure that you get them checked out as well mm. and also uh, uh, your elderly folks who have fallen and hit their heads um, those patients are also quite susceptible as well to develop uh, uh, long-term complications. Our thanks to Dr. Kevin Nguyen for this engaging, very informative podcast. Please stay tuned for more articles and podcasts on this and other subjects related to the Master Grant. If you'd like to contribute to our effort to inform and increase awareness of pituitary disease, please go to our website at pituitaryworldnews.org. Click on Get Involved and follow the simple directions. Thank you. This is Jorge Fascinetti. Thank you for listening.